Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Last episode, we were talking about the whitest white paint in the world being developed by scientists. And as I was putting together our show notes, I noticed that uh, there are Stuart Semples on, on this bandwagon now as well. So we talked about Black 3.0 a number of times uh, over, there, over the last few years and Black 2.0 as well. And then, of course, his Blink Ink last episode that we spoke about, the blackest black ink that you, you can buy. And uh, it sounds like they've just closed the beta on White 2.0, which is, is their response to the whitest white paint in the world. I, I shouldn't really be surprised that Stuart has gone down this route. He seems to be uh, definitely, he's found his niche of of what products to produce, and he likes to seems to like taking these these colors and producing extreme versions of them. So I know he's done an extreme pink as well. His glow in the dark pigments are actually quite nice. In fact, in some ways, they're much nicer than the uh, the ones that are coming out of a, an unnamed Swiss company that the watch industry uses. Um, so it is interesting to to see what he's doing. I, I don't know who he has working on these projects. I, I doubt that he's the one who's actually doing all of it. So I don't know who his... Uh, who his engineers are who are working on these products, but they seem to be doing a great job of it. And while, you know, as we spoke about in the last episode, I don't really have a lot of need for a super, super white, white like that. But it is interesting to see exactly what he's doing and, and to see that that's available because there, there clearly is a, a, an interest in it. And it's nice that he's producing it and selling it at a price that the average person could afford as opposed to these ridiculous licensing schemes where nobody's, you know, nobody outside of a, a select few can actually use it. And in, in the beta, it sounds like they had three different variants they were, were testing out. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to make it out to, to the final product, that you'll, you'll be getting three different flavors of uh, the whitest white. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you do, your white is, you know, you've got a little bit of a color shift in your white, so maybe it's a little bit warmer, maybe it's a little bit cooler. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But then which of the three is the whitest? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> the one that reflects the most light. That's the that's the one that's the whitest. But he was saying that this, uh, I think they're, they've estimated it's, re, it's reflecting something like 99.6% of light, mm-hmm. which is a remarkable amount of light. And I, I can think of a few a few times when I've had something that's sitting outside where it would actually benefit from having a white paint like that on it to to help keep it cooler and, and keep it from uh, from overheating out in the sun. Mm. Are you painting your roof with uh, white 2.0? No, the the thing for us is that we've we've got these nice large maple trees that that cover our mm-hmm. roof in the summer. So in the summertime, we don't actually get direct sun on the roof for most of the time. And then when we do want heat on the roof, which is in the winter, we actually get uh, direct sun on the on the roof because all of the leaves have fallen off the trees. So uh, it actually works out quite well for us. In the anyone who's out there who wants to get inexpensive air conditioning. I can highly recommend planting some maple trees and waiting 150 years and then building a house underneath it. It works really, really well. <laughs> Look, a few of your maples aren't, aren't long for this world, though. No, we, we actually need to cut down a couple of our maple trees, but they're, they are going to go to a better place. They are going to end up being milled into lumber and turned into a nice woodworking bench for me. So you've been up to quite a few woodworking projects as of late. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to get back into doing some woodworking. It's a nice change from some of the watch work. One of the problems I find with the watch work is that working under high magnification like that for any length of time, I do need to take a break from it. So I can't do eight hours at the bench working under, you know, six, 10x magnification on polishing bevels. I need to actually 
stand up and walk around and let my eyes sort of work at a normal distance again. So I've been uh, doing a little bit of word working here and there to uh, to try and keep my eyes and my brain sane and keep my body moving a little bit. In the last episode, we, we talked about photography for, for quite a bit there. And uh, we, we did mention the bellows and, and the use of, <laughs> of bellows just, just very briefly in there and how they can, can benefit macro photography. And uh, you've gone off and bought yourself a bellows. Yeah, it was funny. I, I found a guy, I'll have to look up the uh, the site and, and put it in the show notes. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But he's a, he's a Scotsman who does a lot of macro photography. And I believe he's actually won a number of awards for, for his macro photography over the years. And he was, he's a Nikon shooter like I am. And he was talking about the bellow system that Nikon had developed for many, many years and had for sale for many years. And they stopped producing it in the early 80s. It's funny because they were sort of, they were relatively expensive at the time. And then they stopped making them and then they became really expensive for a while. And then nobody wanted them anymore. So they became really inexpensive. And so you can find these bellows now used that are in perfect condition. You know, they're probably 40 years old at this point, but they're in absolutely perfect condition and you can find them for a little over $100 on eBay. So I I ended up finding a guy in Japan who had one that was in absolutely perfect condition, didn't have the box. So I saved myself a little bit of money from the guys who, the collectors who like to have all their boxes and papers with everything. And uh, I ended up getting this uh, this set of Nikon bellows. They're really nice. They're really well designed. And I, I did a little bit of experimentation with it with some still photography. Haven't tried it with the video yet. But it, it really does do a remarkable job of magnifying your uh, your visible area and uh, and getting some, some really, really detailed shots. So the, the quick shots that I was able to get, I'm actually now able to show the striations, the scratches that are being left from the uh, the fine files that I'm working with, which are difficult to see under, you know, one-to-one magnification, for instance. Like you can't, you can't really get that from a one-to-one reproduction, which is what most macro lenses are getting you uh, when you're, when you're taking a, you're using a, a standard macro lens on a camera, you're usually getting about a one-to-one reproduction. And a lot of these scratches, you just can't see under that magnification. Mm-hmm. And- from the, the quick demo you gave me of it, it's certainly far more convenient than using a bunch of tubes, which is what I've, I've used mm-hmm. to, to convert some of my lenses into to macro lenses in the past. And uh, I think it would, looks like it, it would also come in handy for, for doing some focus stacking work. Yeah. The, it is ironic that the, they've become, the bellows have become inexpensive enough that they're actually cheaper than finding a good uh, stack. Um, a good macro tube setup. Uh, you know, I was looking at the same sort of pricing. Like I think I looking at around $140 for the, the macro tubes set that I was looking at. And this is actually much nicer and it is, uh, you know, it is more flexible and it gives you a lot of other options. And then as you say, it actually has a nice rail on it as well for being able to change the distance that the camera is from the object. So being able to do focus stacking with it is actually quite, quite easy. Uh, you're still doing it manually, so that's annoying. Uh, at some point or another, we'll we'll see how much of the actual photography I do, stills photography I do for these watches when I'm when I eventually start uh, start producing marketing material for it. Uh, I may actually get one of the powered um, macro rails that you can get for doing focus stacking, uh, because there are some some systems on the market that will actually do. Um, you know, you can program them and and do the correct number of steps and divisions. Like you tell it what your 
you know, what your depth of field is and how far you want to be able to move it and things like that. And it'll, it'll automatically move the camera, stop, trigger the shutter, move the camera, stop, trigger the shutter and do that for your, you know, 20, 30, 40, 100 shots, whatever it is that you need to get your, the, the appropriate depth of, uh, of image. So I, I may look into something like that. They're, I think the systems I was looking at were around five or six hundred dollars, so they're not inexpensive, and they are very specific in terms of what they'll do. Uh, but I may may eventually get one of those if I do find myself doing enough of this macro photography that it's worthwhile. I never thought myself to be a, a bellows person, but after seeing this, <laughs> I am actually somewhat tempted. They they've always seemed large and, and clunky in all the ones that I've seen. I've never seen a bellows this compact, and uh, I could actually see myself using this on on my camera setup at, at some point. Um, I won't be taking the plunge anytime soon because I don't have an immediate <laughs> use for it. But I think if I have, I have another like historically significant piece come across my bench mm. that I, I want to document, uh, I might very well consider picking up one of these to to take for a spin on, on my rig. One of the things you'll probably find is most of the bellows you've seen have probably been for medium and large format cameras, and they are considerably larger than the one for the Nikon system. Uh, obviously, these Nikon lenses, they're much smaller. The size of sensor is much smaller. Uh, you know, it's it's working for a 35 millimeter sensor, so you don't need the the size, uh, you know, of image that you're going to get on a medium and large format camera. So you're probably thinking of the of the larger ones when mm. you when you think of a bellows, uh, quintessential bellows. Yeah, exactly. And and these are and and the other advantage that you get with a lot of the the larger medium format ones in particular is that you can also get tilt shift out of it, mm. so you can then not only change the magnification that you're getting out of it, but you can actually change the focal plane and you can, you can get a, you can shift that focal plane so that you can, you can get a better, get the focal plane on a better angle for the shot that you're trying to get. And, and that can help reduce the number of photos that you actually need to take in order to get the, the depth of field that's required as well. I find most, most tilt shift photos that I've seen often make large things look like toys. Well, and that's and that's a situation where you're seeing people taking that tilt shift technology and using it on a larger scale landscape photography or or city photography or something like that, and you do get weird artifacts that come out of it, and you do get sort of that toy look, that toy scene look with uh, with a tilt shift when you're looking at, let's say, a a city. You know, if you're photographing a from the top of a building down to a city, you can get this these weird perspective shifts because of it. In the case of tilt shift with a macro shot. You don't get that because you're not dealing with objects that are that far away, and so you don't you don't get quite as much of uh, of that distortion. Yeah, your, your mind is prepared to see a macro shot, unlike yes. Yes. having an entire cityscape suddenly look like it was taken <laughs> as a macro shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then on top of the use of it for stills photography, uh, I do want to try experimenting with it with a little bit for the video. And I, I the nice thing is that I've got a couple of options with that. I've got a couple of of powered rails that I can use. So that I can like a powered slider, so I can actually slide across the image. Even though I, I'll have a relatively small depth of field, I'll still be able to slide across the image. You'll be able to see the entire part as that depth of field is sort of moving across the image. So it'll be yeah, it'll be interesting to see I, a little bit of experimentation with it, and you know it's it's definitely opens up some possibilities for me. And it was surprisingly inexpensive to get. I, that was the big thing. I. I had put off buying something like that for years because I didn't think it was going to be feasible to buy. But when I saw the cost of them and I saw the versatility of them, it was uh, it was a no-brainer for me. Mm-hmm. Your approach that you're proposing there for the video work is, is a clever way to work around the fact that you're not going to have any sort of, of 
autofocus that, mm-hmm. that would be able to, to work in this case. The, the fact, too, that you're going to be in motion and working as mm-hmm. you're, you're trying to capture this video footage and to try and set up for, for a, a still <laughs> shot with something like this, it takes a lot to dial in yes. your focus absolutely perfectly. So sort of racking your focus in this way and then being able to later pop in and, and pull out the, the slice of video that you, you actually want to use from that that racking is a, is a very clever approach. It, it does make things a little bit easier. And I've seen this done a number of times in sort of stylistic videos about about people working. You'll often see the, the super shallow depth of field uh, you know, shots that you get in these artistic videos about some artist doing woodworking or something like that, you know, making wooden canoes or something. Uh, and they're not doing it on a macro scale, but they're still using the same technique to be able to to highlight very specific parts of a of a project and be able to show off little chunks of, of the project in, in focus. So you do see it pretty regularly in, in sort of a larger scale and, and it can be used very effectively. You don't want to use it too much. You don't want to overuse it but it can be effective for, for some of the work that you're doing. Yeah, it can make for some excellent B-roll. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't want to try and do a tutorial like that. I think the, you know, the... Please don't. The, the depth of field that I'm getting is probably too narrow to be able to get, um, you know, to be able to do that. I think if I was going to do a tutorial on this, I would probably need to get a decent microscope set up for doing it because the, the microscope is going to have a larger uh, a larger depth of field for this kind of work and, uh, and probably be a little bit more effective at it. Uh, we'll see. I, I don't don't really see the need to do that just yet, but we'll we'll see how it works out. Now, given this is from the the nineteen eighties, I imagine it doesn't have a pass through electronics the way that <laughs> that some tubes do. No, no, it doesn't. This is this is pre pre electronics and pre um, autofocus. I, I mean, at this point in Nikon's career, they were still using a screw drive motor to drive the focus on these lenses. So. Even then, they weren't, you know, they weren't trying to do uh, any kind of electronic focusing or anything like that. And that's fine. You know, I'm using a, a lens that has manual focus, manual aperture control, and I don't really need to do anything with that. Although the, the nice thing with the bellows is that it does actually have a lever so you can manually control the, uh, the aperture hmm. if you don't happen to have uh, an, an aperture ring like I do on, on it. So that, that is kind of a nice feature. That's a nice touch. Yeah. yeah. That's... Worth keeping in mind, too, because I imagine the, for anyone who would be considering a, a bellows versus tubes for, for macro photography, mm-hmm. I imagine the tubes you were looking at for 140 probably had the, the electrical pass-through for the Nikon? No, even at that point they didn't. Oh, really? Uh, no, okay. I was, I was, which is surprising. And the reality is that you don't actually want to use the focus on the lens for for doing that focus because it changes the, uh, you, you often get uh, focus breathing, uh, the way that the, the image changes. As you change focus on a lens, you don't typically notice it with stills photography. But if you use a stills lens in video work and you start racking focus from one point to another, you'll often see the image breathing and changing as as it um, as you change that focal point. Um, and with macro photography, particularly with something like this where you're dealing with the the bellows, you're typically not using the focus system on the lens either manually or or otherwise you're actually going to move the entire camera and the enti- you know the entire lens system all backwards and forwards so you're that's how you're going to do your focusing you're not going to do your focusing using the the lens system at all yes just like using a loop i'll have to get a, a bellows for my loop that may be a little uncomfortable in the the vein of shooting video you you sent me an interesting video about the future of, of filmmaking and, and the future of video making recently 
And this was a bit of a follow-up from last year when we were talking about The Mandalorian and the way they shoot The Mandalorian on set. And and for those who who didn't listen to that episode or don't remember, the instead of using a traditional green screen technique where you've got a green screen behind the actors and some of the objects on set and then you go and digitally remove them from that green screen and put them into a scene, the way The Mandalorian is being shot is they have a curved projection screen behind the actors and they're actually projecting the world onto that screen. And they've been using a technique where they can then tie the motion of that projection into the motion of the cameras. So as they move the camera, the scene that's behind the actor is completely appropriate. And it really does give you that impression of of shooting on a real set. And the advantage of it being that you get the lighting and the reflections and everything off of the sort of the projected scenery onto your real world objects, which is something that you don't get in a green screen. And if you've got something reflective on on a character, if you've got a piece of gold or a piece of silver, piece of steel or whatever, it's not going to reflect the things in the green screen unless you go in and you digitally reflect, you know, you put that into the, into the, the, uh, um, you know, you remove that, that green from the reflected object and then replace it digitally with something. And probably the most impressive use of this was when they were shooting the Mandalorian ship because it's, it's actually quite a highly polished uh, ship. And as it was flying through the scenery, because they were using a projected screen around it, they didn't have to worry about all of the reflections that were coming off of the ship. It was just taken care of naturally because it was really reflecting what it was, you know, what the environment that was around it, which was this projected screen. There, there are a lot of advantages to, in terms of post-production and also just general overall feel. It, it feels more real and more natural than a lot of the green screen techniques that people are using because you don't actually need to go and rotoscope somebody out of, out of the green screen. You, you know, if you screw that up, it, it really does look harsh. Fortunately, a lot of those techniques have become really good and automated now, but still, you, every once in a while, you'll see something that is really not well done when it comes to green screen work. And a lot of that disconnect, that sort of uncanny valley, is because it was they weren't separated properly from the background or the digital background that was inserted is just not appropriate for the lighting and everything, the way that the person was shot. And that technique, the way that what they were using, the software they were using for that was actually based on the Unreal game engine that Epic has produced. And they've now produced a version of it for cinematographers, for filmmakers, that you can create your own 3D worlds. And in fact, not only can you create your own 3D worlds, there's a whole uh, ecosystem of objects and environments that people have created. And you can download virtual worlds, virtual scenes, virtual objects, and put them into this unreal environment and then use that as part of your cinematography. And you can either use it in the way that they're using it on The Mandalorian, or you can use it as a traditional green screen technique where you can then shoot your normal actors, you know, some of your objects on a traditional green screen stage and then rotoscope them out and then get them into this virtual world that has been created in Unreal Engine. Um, and it's it's all freely available. Some of the scenery and objects are freely available as well. Some of them you have to pay for and license. But it is really remarkable how powerful this free tool is and the kinds of things that you can now do on a PC, you know, on your regular desktop PC, mm-hmm. 
and render in real time some of these worlds that are just absolutely remarkable and, and incredibly realistic. And NVIDIA recently announced a, a neat tool for being able to, to very quickly paint fantastical worlds. You just tell it, I'm, I'm painting with rocks right now, I'm painting with water, and then it, it uses machine learning to generate a scene from that, which is really powerful for people doing storyboards and, and concept art right. and the like. And uh, to me, this, this takes that up uh, at a whole nother it level. It takes it to a whole nother level, yeah. You're working in 3D, and you have a very fine level of control over things when you want to have that really fine level of control. Mm -hmm. But if you just want to, like, in broad strokes, drop a mountain in here, some rocks in here, and a lake in there, you can just do that. And uh, it was really neat to, to see just how powerful this tech is. And I can see this sort of thing only getting better down the road. I mean, mm -hmm. right now you can make a, a virtual human and use the true depth camera on an iPhone to animate that, that character's face that, that you just made right. using your own face just mm -hmm. by looking at, at your phone. And, you know, Apple just released a, a whole bunch of, of new phones that this past week and, and they've got cinematic mode. I'm not going to, you know, trigger you <laughs> over there, Chris. Please don't. <laughs> but I mean, they're clearly pushing, uh, trying to make this a cinematic device. But I think where this could get really powerful is you've got all these sensors in the phone. You've got these 4K mm -hmm. cameras in the phone, not just one, but multiple 4K yeah. cameras in the phone. And it is entirely feasible that Unreal could use those same sensors and in, in the same way that they can leverage the tech in the true depth camera so that you, as a regular human, can animate a face. You could set up a projector in a room somewhere mm -hmm. and have that tied into a computer that is set up with Unreal Engine that is talking to the phone, which can tell it exactly where it is in space, and you can basically have a a, a Mandalorian-like film studio in your mm -hmm. bedroom. Oh, absolutely! And this is this is really opening up a world that was even two years ago, three years ago, was only available to companies that had massive budgets. You know, whether you're ILM or whether you're or Weta or somebody like that doing these these large productions, these large, large digital productions of, of movies, this is all in that realm. The, the film clip that I sent to you was from the guys at Film Riot who do a YouTube channel on learning how to make films, professional cinema films. And he was using it, I think Ryan was using it for doing previs on one of his, one of his videos. And he built this environment that he knew he was going to be shooting in and I think he actually built one. He reconstructed a, uh, a real environment. And he then went off and did things like change the time of day. So he could he could change the angle of where the sun was. He could change the color temperature of where the sun was, see how it was going to affect the world that he was he was then going to be going and shooting in. And his previs, you know, his storyboard, like this is basically an, a super advanced storyboard technique. He was able to then use that to talk to backers of his movie so that he could show them this is exactly what I want to do and this is what I'm going to you know this is how it's going to look and instead of just looking at some sketches on a napkin or a piece of paper or an iPad or something like that he could actually show them a rendered movie that had a lot of the you know the people in it it had the objects in it all of the things that he wanted to try and do and it, it really is remarkable when you see it versus the final product how well it matches up, or you can actually use it as the final product if you really want to spend the time and energy to do that. So it really is remarkable what, what you can do with this. And as you say, tied in with some of the other technology that all of us carry around in our pockets. 
really the sky's the limit and mm -hmm. and you can um you could really become you know a a, a full-on filmmaker in your basement doing fantastical work that it, it would just be impractical a couple of years ago mm -hmm. no this is really remarkable and the fact that this is free for anyone to use uh, just yeah. uh it's phenomenal yeah it's worth checking out this video, even if you have no intention of ever using anything like this, just to see what, what's going on and, and how some of these projects that you're seeing out in the world are actually being made and and just how how easy it is to do this kind of work. Obviously, for most people, they're never going to play with this stuff. But every once in a while, you see something like this and you and you can see using it in some other project. And it, it was, I, I've been playing around with 3D modeling for decades now, thanks to the, the jewelry work that I do. And and rendering realistic looking scenes and objects and jewelry and things like that has always been a challenge. Mm. And with this game engine, it's all real time. It's all, you know, 100 plus frames a second mm -hmm. rendering. And it's just, it's crazy how good this stuff is compared to what we had. And again, it's all geared towards gaming PCs, which are using commodity graphics cards and hardware. You don't need to have some crazy expensive, you know, silicon graphics workstation or something like that. This is all designed to work off of your desktop PC or your laptop or something like that. Yeah, and all this was was birthed from Unreal Tournament some twenty odd years ago. <laughs> yes. But I, I, back then, I, the name seemed really kitschy to me. Mm -hmm. But I mean, today this this tech truly is Unreal. unreal. Yeah. Like when when you see the the output from it, the fact yeah. that it's rendering it in real time. Yeah, it it's unreal. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, it is pretty amazing. How absolutely, it. has earned its name. Yeah. It's funny, I think about a, a director, somebody like uh, Robert Rodriguez and, and his first movie, El Mariachi, he filmed for a few thousand dollars. Most of the film stock that he bought, he wasn't actually buying film stock. He was having companies send him sample film stock with the under the guise of trying to figure out what, what he wanted to buy for his movie. And so a lot of the shots in, in El Mariachi are only you know, 30 seconds long or whatever, because they would send him these 10 foot lengths of, of film. And so he could only film a certain length of scene before he'd have to change out the film that he had because he couldn't, you know, it wasn't in these longer reels. And, you know, I think he spent something like $16,000 making that film. And I think today about what you could do with $16,000 between things like the, the black magic cinema cameras that I use here that are very inexpensive, but very high quality things like this Unreal Engine, things like DaVinci Resolve, which are relatively inexpensive and can do, you know, industry-level color grading and editing and things like that, uh, all of the tools for doing musical scores and whatnot. It really is amazing what you could do with that same $16,000 today and the kind of film that you could actually put out and put into the world. And really, if your storytelling is good enough, uh, you could easily best any of the hundred million dollar projects that are out there in terms of what you're producing in terms of final output uh, there's really no reason why you need to spend a hundred million dollars or 250 million dollars to make a movie today if you want to tell a story and, and you you've got a great idea for telling a story you can absolutely do that for a trivial amount of money today you look at what you can do with unreal engine today compared yeah. to the polar express or even when they, they put Carrie Fisher into the last Star Wars film mm -hmm. yeah. um, or Tarkin in the, in the previous one. And you see these, these actors that they've, they've, you know, visualized in there and they just look horrible. They, they really don't look very good at all. 
And so they, it is nice to see these kinds of techniques getting better and better. We are quickly approaching the point where they're crossing through the uncanny valley and they can actually produce real looking, real enough looking digital images that uh, digital humans that they can get past that, that creepy factor that you get from, from when it's not quite right. Um, so it's, it is, uh, it is pretty amazing and it's all, it's all freely available to you. Mm-hmm. So we'll, uh, we'll be seeing you filming from a, a remote location in, in one of your, your future. <laughs> yeah, maybe, videos. maybe I need to create some weird, uh, weird desert environment or something like that. And I can, uh, I can do all my, my watch tutorials from some alien world. You don't have to worry about any of your steel part resting on you. Exactly. Huh? Exactly. Speaking of remote locations, Swiss Info recently published a, a video on Kerivotilainen, and then they took a, a little tour inside of his atelier there. It is remarkable just how, how big of an operation <laughs> Kerivotilainen ha, has become over the years. I think atelier may be misrepresenting the the location and this and the building that he has. I, it's I think it's an old um, old hotel that he's converted into his studio, and it's you know, on the side of a mountain and it is absolutely gorgeous. Some of the drone shots they had of the building and the environment, it's, it's a gorgeous location to work in. I, I would certainly enjoy going to work every day in, in that. Although I imagine if it, if they get snowed in, it's kind of miserable, but, uh, it is I just ski and work. <laughs> well, depends on whether you live above or below the, <laughs> the office. You may be able to ski home, skiing, uh, skiing to work, maybe a little bit of, of, of effort. But it really is a gorgeous location that they have there, and it was nice to get a, to get a scene inside of the studio. Obviously, they've been. I think they brought in their dial making into the same building as their watchmaking now, because I believe for for a long time they were actually two separate facilities. So it looks like they may have brought the two of them together because they had all of their engine turning equipment set up mm-hmm. in this, and they there were some really good shots of of their their studio where they're doing engine turning work so that was really nice to see unfortunately they never give quite enough details and and show off enough details for me when i'm seeing that but it was nice to see that and they you know they're showing off the the different uh, watchmaking setups and benches and and finishing areas and whatnot so it was uh it was really quite an interesting video worthwhile seeing if you're if you're curious to see what a uh, a nice watchmaking studio from an independent watchmaker looks like this was this is definitely the nicest of them. I, I'm supremely jealous of his studio. Mm-hmm. A very spacious, very well equipped. Oh, gorgeous light everywhere. Yeah. It's yeah, and and again, beautiful views. It's just is it really is a remarkable space. Mm-hmm. Just a, a lovely, serene place to work. Mm-hmm. So we'll be sure to, to link to that video in the show notes. There was a, an article that accompanied it as well. And uh, one of the nice things about Swiss Info is you can just freely download it if you want to you know, preserve it mm-hmm. uh, for yourself for for posterity. Keep a, a copy local on your, your hard disk or throw it up on your Plex server. The other thing I, I appreciated about it was uh, just the fact that that Kari was reiterating what Dufour has, has lamented that we've referred to a number of times in the past that graveyards are, are full of secrets. Mm-hmm. That are like every time a, a watchmaker passes away, you know, you, you lose a generation, if not generations, worth of knowledge if right. they have not passed that on and, and transmuted it to, to the next generation. And that's something he has thought a lot about and is being very careful to do within his company is to transmit knowledge and to not hold back any sort of, of secrets uh, that uh, everyone is, is there to, to learn 
and and to get better at the craft. And if they're experimenting on something, they'll, they'll work on it all together and come up with, with what works and then move on, on from there and, and share the knowledge uh, across the entire staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really encouraging to see that and two, to see how many young people are there within in the company as well. Uh, I, I almost wish there were a couple older generations <laughs> of people in the mix as well so that there'd be more of that that cross-generational transmission of information between yeah, watchmakers and, and the guilloche artists and, and all the, the different craftspeople that are involved in, in bringing one of these incredible timepieces yeah. from Votilainen's Atelier to, to life. It is nice to see. It would be it would be even nicer to see some of these companies starting to produce uh, more content, maybe, maybe less slick marketing content and more... Uh, you know, sort of vlog style content about what's going on in the studio, maybe from, from individuals. It would be really nice to see some of that and be able to get more of that information just out into the world, either on a YouTube channel or whatnot. There are a few horologists who've started putting more information out more regularly. Uh, there's three in particular that have started um, sort of working semi together. Uh, Ruben Schutz, who we've talked about over the years a couple of times, uh, he's got some good information up on his videos on his YouTube channel. Uh, he's actually in the process of setting up a new studio at his new house, so that's been um, that's been interesting to sort of follow along. Plus, he's talking about some of the watches and whatnot that he's working on. Uh, Tommy Jobson, who's out of London, he's a uh, antiquarian horologist who primarily works on clocks, although he does have a lot of experience working on watches as well. And then James Palmer, who used to work for Roger Smith. He's now out on his own and independent and working on making his first Twilio on watch for sale. And again, he's in London and publishing about some of his process. He's actually in the middle of doing a video series on restoring a lean hard straight line engine. So mm-hmm. that's been nice to see. And he's going to start learning how to use that as well and, and incorporate that work into his into his own jobs. So it's uh, it's nice seeing some of these guys talking about the work they're doing. Uh, obviously, you know, it's it's tough to find people who are willing to share that knowledge. Uh, it, it would be nice to see some of these or some of these companies put together a little video team that can actually go around the company and sort of talk about little bits and pieces of what's going on and and be able to put out more informational uh, videos on how things are being done or what's being done. Maybe a little bit more detail rather than just pure marketing. Because I think that for a lot of a lot of people buying these independent watchmakers watches. Part of what they want to see is they want to know what, first off, they don't want to know who it is that's working on their watches, but also they want to be able to know the details of what's going on, right? You talk to a car person who's really into their car and they know the details of that car. They know the specs of the car. They know the differences between that particular engine versus another engine. Like there's a reason why they picked that particular car. Same thing with people who are sailors, people who are you know, we're scuba divers, whatever it is, watch people are the same way. They want to know the details about why it was made and, and why that's important. And I think that's a big part of what separates us independent watchmakers from the people who are putting out a million watches a year. Uh, yes, the technology they're doing, they're using to make those watches in such quantity is interesting, but it's not the same as these people who are handcrafting watches on a small scale and it would be nice to see more of that information out there, even if it wasn't quite enough to, for somebody to sit down and look at it and go, okay, now I know how to make all of those parts. 
even if it was just enough to be able to say, okay, now I understand the questions that I have to ask to find out how to make those parts. That's often the biggest problem when you're first starting out is you don't even know the questions to ask yet. And some of that sort of basic information would be, uh, you know, those informational videos would be good for being able to show that off. Continue to anxiously await the, the video that is uh, apparently in production at the, the Time Yen Alliance. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I mean, that project started in, I think it was 2006. So it's been 15 years now. I've just I'm not been, holding my breath. Um, but I, I think I need to stop holding my breath, perhaps. Yeah. But, uh, or maybe we need to get a hold of them and say, give us the footage and we will edit it for you for free. <laughs> I'm sure they have a lot of great video and photography that, that has been captured that is just mm-hmm. sitting on a, a hard drive or a number of hard drives somewhere. And I understand the challenges of that. I, one of the reasons why I haven't been putting out as many videos lately as I want is because I'm heads down trying to get these bridges finished and, and working so that I can I can get working on the rest of the project. And making the parts and then making videos about the parts and the, and what you're doing, it really does add a, a significant amount of time to that that effort. So I, I understand why a lot of people don't want to do it. Kari is in a unique position because even though he's an independent watchmaker, he has a large enough organization that he could easily have a small team of three or four people who could be doing that work. They could have, you know, let's say two people who are doing the the video work and actually capturing the artists working uh, at at their job and then have sort of two people sitting there and editing that content and being able to put it out. So it, it certainly is possible with a, an organization his size, which is, I mean, he probably has 50 plus people in his organization now based on on sort of seeing their setup and what's going on and knowing how they're producing things. So adding a few more people to be able to do that kind of work, it would be worthwhile for them, I think, in a lot of ways. The problem is it's tough to, when you're just looking at it on a balance sheet, it's tough to justify putting that sort of work and effort into into doing it when there isn't an immediate return on investment. But I think in the long term, it, it actually does work well. When I see what the re, the reaction that people get uh, especially independent watchmakers on places like Instagram with people who are following along and want to buy their watches. When you see the reactions that they get from the process photos, the process photos that I've posted on Instagram always get the most attention uh, of anything that I post on there. So uh, it used to be the food photos and now it's the, uh, now it's the, the process <laughs> photos. So it is nice to see that. And, and people really are interested in that. And I think there is there is a value to it. It's not necessarily in direct compensation in terms of how much you can charge or how many you're going to sell. But I think there really is a, a, a direct or there, there's an, enough indirect interest that it, it, it is worth it. I think it would certainly engender an even greater affinity to his brand. He has become a brand sure. yes. uh, amongst uh, collectors and then people who aren't yet knowledgeable enough or, or brought into the fold. It, it would help sure. to bring them in. Um, because I think teaching is a, a fantastic form of advertising. It is. And and it's the sort of thing that I don't think somebody like uh, Philippe Dupour can do. He he doesn't have the facilities and the and the resources to be able to do that. It's it's him and, and Daniela now working on these these projects. They don't have the ability between the two of them to be able to then film and edit and get that information out there. And he you know, he's small enough it's a small enough organization and an operation that it would be difficult for him to add that. But when you look at the Grubel Forzies and the the Kari Vudalainens of the world, uh, they're they're certainly large enough organizations that they could justify doing that and actually putting putting together a team like that. Well, 
group of fours into four are, are <laughs> keystone members of, of the time he analyzed. Uh, yes, yeah, so, maybe they're poor, poor examples. <laughs> there'll, there'll be something someday. But, uh, I don't know, perhaps the, the Watches TV is, is in on it. I think I had caught wind of of something there that the, they were working on in, in tandem with Group of Forzi. So perhaps uh, they are, are behind the, the production of uh, a film. But I think it's, it's got to be 2018 or something like that now that uh, yeah. they said they were working on a film. Yeah, I think it's tough as well because for a, traditionally a lot of people have thought about that kind of work as being the sort of thing that you put together into a longer feature-length film. But I think we need to stop thinking about it from those terms and put up bite-sized nibbles yeah you know 10 to 15 minute long videos are certainly feasible to do and they're easier for people to consume and they're much easier to produce trying to produce a two-hour long documentary on something isn't a trivial task whereas putting together a 10 or 15 minute long video about a particular process is is much easier to do and and i think that that's probably more feasible and then you can also put out something on a more regular basis and consistent basis, and then that gives you the ability to build a following over time. You know, when we see somebody like Chris from Clickspring and what he was able to do building his channel for years on these little bite-sized bits and pieces that he did over time and being able to put up a 10 or 15-minute long video about making a particular part of a clock or his Antikythera mechanism, he's able to to build up quite a following and it's it really is remarkable what a single person can do in that case. This isn't even his full time job, and he's able to build up that mech, that that following of people to to follow along on YouTube. Somebody like a like a Kari, you know, or a group of Porzi or somebody like that, if they were to put out regular, you know, five to fifteen minute long content on a weekly basis about this stuff, they would certainly get a following very quickly, and and how a lot of people would be interested in what they're doing, even people who may not be interested in their watches right now they would be you know they may become people who are interested later on yeah i mean given the reach of, of a platform like youtube that that mm-hmm. small team of, of three or four people could become another company entity unto itself under yeah. that that kari votilanen umbrella that that has developed because i mean he has the dial manufacturer he has the case manufacturer sure. you know? And uh, they're not just producing for him; they're producing, they're producing for, for, for other, other company. Absolutely, um, I don't know if they would ever get that far <laughs> with, with, say, a video production crew yeah. uh, doing that. So, if I wanted to take my filmmaking and and editing skills and and work with somebody like a Bradley Taylor here in Canada, that's just impractical because he's on the other side of the continent, and and it would be difficult for me to just swing by and film some things. But in, in an area that's that's the size of of the watchmaking industry in Switzerland, it would be actually feasible to be able to do that kind of of thing and and have a team who could even go to a couple of different places over over a few weeks and film some content so there is actually a you know sort of a if there was enough interest from the companies and they were willing to share enough information there there certainly is a high enough density in that area to be able to do something like that and have a separate company that could actually do the media production work which i think the watches tv has proven Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what Mark Andre is doing is, a, is remarkable. He, he puts out some great content. He ha- obviously has some really talented uh, cinematographers and some talented editors and they find some, they get access to great places. And, and I think that that, that shows that there is enough demand for that kind of work. And, uh, and if you're really serious about sharing knowledge and getting that information out there, that really is it, today. YouTube is the best way to do it. It is the second largest search engine on the web. And it is where people go more often than not when they're trying to find something interesting to, to look at and, 
And certainly people are watching far more of that content than they are traditional television today. And in this vein, the, the Naked Watchmaker project, so the, Peter Speak and, and Danielle Marin, are, they'll be releasing a, a master class series in mm-hmm. just a few weeks' time. And uh, we'll see what, what that brings with it. At the moment, uh, to me, it, it seems like it is targeted more at the collectors, but given the nature of a lot of the other content that they have put out over the years, I think there will likely be some, some very interesting stuff in there for, for watchmakers over time as well. And they do hint at the fact that they intend to put out more uh, detailed information later on, more detailed videos later on in, in other series that I think go into more specifics. And I, and I think that'll be based a lot on how this first series does. So if you're already a watchmaker and you're already in the industry doing a lot of this work, I think this, this first series is probably not appropriate for you. It's probably a little bit too basic, but certainly if you're an avid collector or you're interested in getting more information or getting into this industry, I think this this series, based on what I've seen so far, looks like it's going to be uh, going to be worthwhile for for that uh, that kind of person who is trying to to get their feet into it and and sort of really really learn uh, more of the the behind the scenes work that goes into making watches. An area of watchmaking or tangential to watchmaking, where the transmission of knowledge seems to be quite strong as with the OTI Ornamental Turners International puts out talks and, and publications quite frequently. There was an, an interesting presentation just recently by, by David Lindo that, that you pointed me to. David Lindo has done a lot over the years, uh, probably more than any other person I can think of over the years to really expand the art and knowledge of ornamental turning uh, and sort of tangentially bringing along engine turning with it as well, because they they are interlinked. You can't really have one without the other. And he's done that through a lot of the talks that he's given. He has been president of OTI over the years uh, and has helped put together some great symposiums over the years as well. And then on top of that, he's also a maker of tools. You can buy the Lindo Rose engine, or if you're, um, and if you have a deeper interest in ornamental turning and you really want to get into some of the high-end work, you can even go down the road of one of his made lathes. You'll need some deeper pockets to go with that. Slightly deeper, deeper pockets, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, but he's he's one of the few people now that's actually producing a quality rose engine that's available for doing this kind of work. And you can either do ornamental turning in wood or you know or plastics or something like that, or you can also use them for doing engine turning as well. And his his machines are really quite remarkable for this kind of work. So David David really is. Um, is one of those people who is is doing some amazing things to help keep this industry alive and help keep this knowledge alive. And recently, the Society of Ornamental Turners in the UK they they do a monthly talk on um, on Zoom these days. And one of the members typically will give a talk about particular techniques or uh, you know particular type of work that they're doing. OTA or last month's SOT meeting they invited David Lindo along to talk about his made lathe. And uh, a lot of other people got um, got sucked into that as well. A couple of other groups, including the OTI members and the Plumiere Foundation members as well, were invited to that uh, to attend that that talk. And one of the nice things about that that work is that that video is that it's now available on YouTube to, to watch. So you can see David's talk. He goes through a little bit of the history of the made lathe, how it was created, why it was created, as well as some great photos. Uh, his wife, Becky, has put together some great photos of, of the lathe, as well as 
a lot of the add-ons for that lathe, and then also photos of a lot of the pieces that they've been working on and learning how to use the lathe properly, trying to recreate historical pieces that Holtzaffel was working on, as well as new techniques that um, that, that Holtzaffel hadn't, uh, hadn't really thought of or imagined at the time. So this, this presentation is really quite excellent. He does eventually go into more of the experimental stuff with the ornamental turning that they're doing. And uh, his son Christian is also learning a lot of this and sort of experimenting and pushing it as well. So it really is a it is really quite a uh, an interesting talk. It's around an hour long. Certainly worthwhile looking at. A lot of the work is not directly related to watchmaking, as you say. However, a lot of the techniques that they're talking about can be directly moved into engine turning, and you could certainly do interesting dial work with with some of this. Yeah, you could do some really interesting things with ornamental turning and watch cases. Chris Plouffe, who we've talked about a few times, he actually does some really interesting work where he uses his ornamental engine to his rose engine to actually cut and um, and ornament uh, jeweler's wax, which he then has cast into silver. So, for instance, he's done um, shaving handles, ra- razor handles out of cast work that he's ornamentally turned. Uh, he's even done buttons and things like that as well. Uh, so there, he's done quite a quite a, a large amount of work with converting that ornamental turning into working with metals. And it wouldn't be difficult to take some of that and turn it into something like casework, especially with the ability to cast into stainless steel through tech form like what I'm doing. It wouldn't be difficult to actually machine this in wax and then send it off to tech form, have it cast in stainless steel. And away you go. You've now got yourself a, a really interesting and unique case that is impossible to make other any other way. So, if you're if you like the engine turning world, this is again tangential to it, and it really is fascinating what what they've been doing with it. And in some of you know in some of these cases, you can also uh, cut straight into the metal as well because you've got a lot of cases you're using today carbide tooling. So, you know, a hundred years ago, if you were using low carbon steel tooling or medium carbon steel, steel tooling, you wouldn't necessarily be able to do a lot of good work in metals. You wouldn't get the you wouldn't be able to get the surface speed up fast enough to get good cuts out of it. Or they would just dull too quickly or whatever. But today with today's modern carbide, you can easily cut straight into a lot of these metals, whether it's stainless steel or or silver or gold or whatever. And so you you could actually do some some really fascinating work with it. One thing he, he did speak about a fair bit with uh, the the tooling side of thing was fixed tooling, mm-hmm. which is not something I have, have ever done. Have you done any fixed tooling work? I have done a little bit of it. I was fortunate a few years ago, uh, fortunate, thanks to Air Canada, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I ended up spending an extra day in Los Angeles a few years ago. I was at the LA Pen Show, and when they had booked me on my return flight, uh, what they had failed to mention was that they had booked me on a return flight on March 15th instead of February 15th. And so I was, they wanted me to stay in, in LA for a month. And, you know, I, I like LA, especially February, March. It's nice to be in LA versus Ottawa, much nicer environment. But uh, I, I couldn't really justify spending a month in LA. I certainly couldn't afford it. So um, I was sort of stranded in LA because they booked me on a, on a return flight later that night. But I, I had sort of a day to spend in, in the city. And fortunately, Al Collins, who's a friend through the OTI, he is located in uh, in LA. In fact, he's not very far from uh, from LAX, and he was generous enough to come and rescue me from the from the airport. And I was able to spend a day in his shop, 
And I have to say, there are few people in the world who are better at fixed tool work than Al Collins. Is he? He really does some unbelievable work. Uh, I've got a couple of his pieces uh, in my collection, and he he just does stunning, stunning work. I I absolutely love his his stuff. And so with fixed tooling, it's it's interesting because you're using um, a fixed blade, often one that's shaped in a particular curve, and you're scraping along the surface. And so you're taking a very, very fine shaving. It's almost like using a plane blade, like a hand plane for woodworking or hand scraper, like a cabinet scraper in woodworking, where you're taking a very, very fine shaving from the wood. And in combination with the uh, the rose engine and the rocking motion of the rose engine, you're able to get some very, very pronounced shapes off of this, the, the you know, off of this cutter. Uh, and some really remarkable work that you just can't get any other way. You can't use a spinning cutter to to get this kind of work, um, these these shapes and, and whatnot. And the nice thing about the way, so he was also one of the people that was involved in the development of the made lathe. And one of the reasons that he wanted to develop it was to add some features that he was looking for. And one of the things that you want to do when you're when you're using fixed tooling is you want to very slowly move the tool into the part as it's rotating. So the the part is rotating at a slow speed unlike on a on a traditional plane lathe where you've got the part turning at high speed and you're putting a fixed cutter against it in this you want it turning at a very slow speed and you want to advance the cutter by a very small amount let's say a 10,000th of an inch every rotation so you're very 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 fine shavings as you're going in and he wanted a mechanism so that it would automatically advance every rotation into a very small amount. And then he runs the system off of a off of a smooth DC motor so that it just sits there and runs for hours at a time. And in fact, even once it has finished going to the maximum depth that it's going to go to, he lets it run for an hour after that just so that it will sit there and it'll polish and burnish the wood hmm. afterwards. So he doesn't, you don't need to sand it. You don't need to do anything with it. You know, he'll apply a, apply a finish to it, like a polish to it afterwards. But you don't need to do any any sanding or anything like that afterwards. And you get this beautiful, beautiful finish off of a nice hardwood, something like a uh, an African blackwood. You can get amazing finishes off of it. And this is a traditional technique that was, that's been used in ornamental turning for hundreds and hundreds of years. If you look at something like the Coburg ivories, they're in one of the Medici palaces in Florence. I can, can't remember exactly which one, but they're, they're absolutely remarkable. They were a combination of drill work and fixed tooling where they were, they were scraping the, the sides of these, these boxes to make uh, just incredible, fantastical pieces. Uh, they were using ivory for their pieces, but of course that's just not, not possible anymore. So there are faux ivories that you can purchase, which are various types of, of plastics and resins and whatnot. Uh, that leave a they give you a pretty re- reasonable alternative to it. Uh, some people are using boxwood if they have available large enough pieces of it, um, and uh, and again things like African blackwood. You you can mopani. You can get some amazing woods and just remarkable look out of these you know out of this fixed work this fixed pulling work. So it is it is different than what a lot of people think of as turning, uh, but it is uh, it is pretty amazing stuff. So were you able to walk away with a, a finished product in your time there with Al, or you just had, had a chance to 
to dabble? Uh, I have a box that's a that's about a third done uh, that I started working on. I actually need to uh, to do some work on it. I'm uh, so it's the body of a box that I turned and uh, and ornamented the outside of it. I need to actually drill out the inside of it and apply some um, you know finish to the inside of it as well, and then make a little lid for it. So I was thinking about putting a little silver domed um, engine turned lid on it, maybe enamel it as well. Um, so I, I do need to still do some work on that, but, uh, yeah, it's sitting, it's sitting in the cabinet over here and, uh, it's, it is kind of nice to be able to, to be able to do that, you know, that kind of work with somebody who really is a master of what, what he's doing. And we'll, we'll make sure to put a link to Al's Instagram account in, um, in the show notes. He, he doesn't post often, but when he does, he'll often post five or six different posts with a bunch of process photos and, and of the work that he's doing. And it really is remarkable work. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.